This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am. Not 100%, but I am. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, Murder Fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday, where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Raman Raghav. Now, it's not going to be a terribly long one due to just a sheer lack of detailed information, but he was requested by several people, so I wanted to make a podcast on him. I also was not able to find his actual birth date beyond the year 1929. So let's get into some history for that time. In the United States, the Wall Street crash of 1929 ushered in a new era we know as the Great Depression, but it became a worldwide crisis that lasted until the mid-1930s. But also this year, the Museum of Modern Arts opened on Fifth Avenue in New York, and it only had six rooms at the time. This year, the Vatican gained its independence from Italy and it became its own sovereign state under international law. The whole of Vatican City is within Rome and it is only about 110 acres, which is so very small. One of the largest attempts at trying to keep international peace for the whole world was made during the Kellogg, Bryant, or Paris Pact. This pact outlawed war with regards to national policy and worldwide conflict resolution. This was, of course, after World War I. Nearly every single nation signed that pact, but it became apparent fairly quickly that this pact would fail. In the United Kingdom, the first public phone booths began to appear in London. The German airship Graf Zeppelin completed a round-the-world flight. The first car radio was made by Motorola in the United States. And finally, Edwin Hubble was publishing a lot of the very foundations for understanding our galaxy and a great deal of the theories that much of modern astronomy is based on. 
Someone who, say, was a carpenter in the United States back in the late 1920s and early 30s would make about $1.27 an hour. This same person would make 25 cents an hour in Switzerland in comparison. The Great Depression did have a severe impact on India, which is where our serial killer was from. At that time, India was under British rule. Some historians state that it slowed long-term industrial development. The government of India enacted a protective trade policy, which proved quite beneficial to the United Kingdom, but caused severe damage to the local Indian economy. Imports and exports fell dramatically, which greatly affected their seaborne international trade. Raman Raghav, known as India's Jack the Ripper, was a tough case to research. There really wasn't much of any information about his early life. I couldn't find anything about his parents or if he had any siblings other than I did find out he had at least one sister. He was raised in a village somewhere in Tamil Nadu, which is really at the southern tip of India. According to an article in The Pioneer, a man was interviewed that grew up with Raman. That man said Raman had no interest in school. He also said that from a very early age, Raman was already stealing and committing petty crimes. He did go to school, but he quit going at a pretty early age as well, though I couldn't find out what that age actually was. Something else I found interesting was that it was mentioned in several places that he was always very aware of how presentable he looked. He wanted his skin to look nice. He took great pride in using a lot of coconut oil to moisturize his skin. He wanted his hair to be combed and looking nice. In fact, he was so concerned with his appearance, he carried a mirror with him to, you know, on occasion, check his appearance to make sure he was well put together. And this is really all I have as far as a childhood goes. So basically, we have nothing. We know he was particular about his appearance, had no interest when it came to his education, and was committing petty crimes from an early age. Certainly, I think we can all agree that he was not setting himself up for a particularly easy life. I wish I had more, but this is an older case, and with the time that I have, I just couldn't find anything further. Now, the man that grew up with him stated that Raman did have a roommate for a time who was also found dead, the death never having been investigated as far as Raman's possible involvement or not. It was also said that he met a girl and they began to date and eventually got married, but it didn't last long because he raped his own sister before brutally stabbing her so he was sent to prison. Prison will ruin a marriage. After his release, he moved to the city of Pune in India, which is southeast of Mumbai. 
Pune itself is supposedly the ninth most populous city in India and the second largest in the state, next to the capital of Mumbai, of course. It has a very rich history that I enjoyed reading about, actually, but Pune was considered by the British as sort of the epicenter of political unrest against their rule. After their independence, they became a major manufacturing center. Then there was growth in higher education, and the city began to boom. However, Raman was just not able to keep a steady job, and he survived on petty theft. Now, I read an article that stated he had always been extremely homophobic, and it is theorized that, perhaps, he had been a homosexual and he was scared of this. In the 1960s, people in India were usually ashamed of this and very much feared coming out. Then in 1961, the Panchet flood occurred, which resulted in a huge loss of housing along the Mula Mutha riverbank. Many people were uprooted and homeless in the areas along where the flooding had happened. It isn't known if this was the catalyst or not, but not long after, Raman migrated northwest to Mumbai. Now, this is where it all begins. Once there, he just seemed to wander the streets. He was seen always walking alone down the very busy streets, clutching an umbrella. While anyone who might have noticed him walking along would have told you that he caused no trouble. He didn't get into fights, and he didn't seem to even hold a grudge. Again, he was described as very well-kept, clean, with his hair clean and combed. Then in 1965, a series of murders began to take place in the eastern suburbs of Mumbai, near the Central Railway Line. People were forced to sleep kind of rough, you know, in these crude huts, and others literally slept on the pavement, were being bludgeoned to death. It was determined that makeshift weapons were being used. It would seem that stray animals were being mercilessly killed as well. There was an eyewitness who was related to one of the victims who went to the police. She described a homeless man she had seen near the crime scene, which matched Raman, and he was brought in for questioning. But he was released due to lack of evidence. A total of 19 people were killed during this murder spree. And then, the murderer didn't strike again for three years. The people of the city began to stop fearing the nameless, faceless murderer. But then in 1968, just three years later, the brutality would begin again. The bodies began to pile up again. The authorities were left scratching their heads due to the sheer lack of information they had about any potential suspects. They knew the man was living out in the jungles just outside of the city and would emerge from those jungles at night to kill. The killer was not discriminatory whatsoever about his victims. He would bludgeon them in the head until they were dead, be it man, woman, child, or even infant. 
Some he would just pickpocket, sit, eat their rice or whatever food they might have and leave. Others he would sexually violate their corpses. The lead detective said, quote, these murders were motiveless. If any petty gain had been achieved in the process, the violence inflicted on the victims was totally disproportionate to any such gain, unquote. Nearly every day, there was a new body found, a new murder discovered. The locals began to believe the man had some sort of gift of supernatural powers that he could shapeshift into a parrot or a cat. The police presence was increased, and at one point, more than 2,000 policemen were out patrolling at night. But the citizens were not going down without a fight. There are reports that several innocent people were beaten nearly to or completely to death just because they were walking around after dark. People were terrified due to the brutality of the murders, you see, but out of the chaos, there was one suspicious-looking man that had been seen loitering the areas where the murders had occurred, our boy Raman Raghav. The detective found Raman and, recognizing him from photographs and knowing he had a established history of petty theft and had at least been a suspect in the previous murders, decided to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. The detective said in an interview, quote, Those days, I used to carry a photograph of Raghav in my shirt pocket. I was waiting for a bus and I saw a well-built man in khaki shorts and a long blue bush shirt walking towards me. Something about the man struck me and I instinctively decided to follow him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As he walked past me, he gave me a casual glance as I was in uniform. He glanced again and it drew my suspicion. Unquote. Fialho observed that Raghav was carrying a wet umbrella, but it had not rained in South Mumbai that day. On his person, he had a pair of glasses belonging to one of the murder victims. He also had two hair combs, a pair of scissors, a stand for burning incense, some soap, random garlic, something they called tea dust, and two separate pieces of paper with mathematical equations and other work written on them. Upon closer inspection, the shirt and shorts he was wearing did have blood on them, and the shoes he was wearing were very, very muddy. They took his fingerprints and quickly realized they were a match to those on record from some of the crime scenes, and they then knew that they had finally caught their murderer. So, when they first began to interrogate him, he wouldn't speak. 
They tried everything they knew to get him to confess and he would not. He was even shockingly tortured during his questioning and still no talking. Then, as mysterious as his silence under those conditions, one of the officers happened to ask him if he wanted anything to eat. Finally, Rahman said he wanted chicken curry. Taking a chance that he might finally talk, they did bring him something to eat. And their suspicions were correct. He ate his food happily, then told the officers to ask him whatever they wanted. He eventually confessed to committing 41 murders. After his confession, he took officers on a citywide tour of his crime scenes, where he had been hiding in the jungle, and he also retrieved his murder weapon, which was this strangely shaped metal rod. He requested a prostitute, to which he was denied. He then asked for hair oil, a comb, and a mirror, which I believe he was granted. So during his trial, experts stated that he was mentally fit to stand trial. In fact, they said, quote, the accused is neither suffering from psychosis or mentally retarded. His memory is sound, his intelligence average, and he is aware of the nature and purpose of his acts. He is able to understand the nature and object of the proceedings against him and is not certifiably insane, unquote. Now those are their words, not mine. He did receive the death penalty, but his defense team argued that Rahman was, quote, mentally incapable of making conscious decisions, hence did not know that his actions were unlawful, unquote. So the court appointed three separate psychiatrists to have him evaluated. Now here's where things get really interesting. This is when Rahman was officially diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia and had been for a very long time and was therefore unable to understand that his actions were contrary to the law. Now, I can already see the comments blowing up with people saying that it's unfair to say that his schizophrenia caused him to kill and that nearly all schizophrenics are completely safe and good people. I know this very well. I'm simply stating that in this particular case alone, his diagnosis contributed greatly to his crimes. So let's get into that. When he was asked why he had killed all those people, he stated he had received instructions to do so from God and how God wanted it done. He said, quote, A few days later, I saw a hut where a family was sleeping. I cut the string which fastened the front door and then hit the husband with an iron rod, killing him instantly. The woman and child woke up, started shouting. I killed them too. I was thinking of sleeping with the woman, but someone came and I ran away. The gold necklace turned out to be imitation jewelry. I saw a helmet. A bearded man was sleeping. The door was open. I hit him and he died on the spot. I took his wristwatch and when I saw some money in his java. I also took some peanuts, an umbrella, and a torch. Once home, I tore the java and made handkerchiefs." Unquote. 
And if I mispronounced any of these things, I apologize terribly. So throughout five different interviews, he referenced fixed as well as systematic delusions of persecution and grandeur. His delusions included that he felt there were two very distinct worlds, our world that we all exist in and the world of Kanun. He believed 100% that people were trying to change his sex, trying to change him into a woman, but that the attempts were unsuccessful because he was a representative of Kanun. He believed he was a Shakti, which is the primordial cosmic energy and represents the dynamic forces that are thought to move through the entire universe. He believed that people were putting homosexual temptations in his way to tempt him to succumb to the pressures and thus be changed into a woman. He repeated often that he was, quote, 101% man, unquote. He felt that the government brought him to Mumbai to commit thefts and forced him to commit criminal acts. He stated there were three governments in India, the Akbar government, the British government, and the Congress government, and these three governments were trying to prosecute him and put the temptations right back in front of him, again, trying to change him into a woman by having homosexual relations. Quote, he had a superiority complex. He came from a warrior background, and he used to take pride in it. He was a misogynist, unquote. So let's take kind of a quick look at chronic paranoid schizophrenia. According to an article by Dr. Dina Cagliostro, paranoid schizophrenia is characterized by predominantly positive symptoms of schizophrenia, including delusions and hallucinations. These debilitating symptoms blur the line between what is real and what isn't making it difficult for the person to lead a typical life. Schizophrenia itself occurs in around 1% of the population, and paranoid schizophrenia is considered the most common subtype of this chronic disorder. The average age someone can begin to experience symptoms is in their late teens to early adulthood, so somewhere between 17 to 30. It is indeed very rare that anyone would develop the symptoms before the age of 16 or after the age of, say, 40. It does happen, but it's excruciatingly rare. On average, males begin to experience symptoms earlier in life than females. At first, the person might reduce their socialization with friends. They may experience sleep disturbance, lack of motivation, their grades begin to drop, and they are irritable. Then there is a marked decrease in the ability to pay attention and then social isolation. Some common symptoms include seeing, hearing, or tasting things that others do not, suspiciousness, and a general fear of others' intentions persistent and unusual thoughts or beliefs, difficulty thinking clearly, withdrawal and a significant decline in self-care. 
If someone believes they might have these symptoms, studies have shown that early intervention is best for more positive outcomes. Then could potentially come the impaired motor or cognitive functions, including disorganized speech and disorganized or catatonic behavior. Now the paranoia stems from delusions, which are firmly held beliefs held by the person even though they've been shown evidence to prove otherwise. They also stem from hallucinations, seeing and or hearing things that are not there. Sometimes these hallucinations are hateful and threatening in nature, hostile, driving the sufferer to do things that they otherwise would not do. Raman was completely consumed by his delusions. The vast majority of his energy and attention was focused on keeping and protecting his falsely held beliefs and perceptual distortions. It seems pretty obvious that he went undiagnosed and had been living that way for many, many years. When it is left untreated, it can cause complications such as depression, homelessness, poverty, inability to go to school or work, anxiety, phobias, social isolation, being a victim of aggressive behaviors by others, which by the way is common, substance abuse, self-injury, and even suicide. So Raman's sentence was changed to just life in prison in the 1980s, and it was said that he was a model prisoner during his confinement. He then died from kidney failure in 1995. So again, guys, I really wish I could have found some more information about his childhood, his parents or their backgrounds, their treatment of him, if any of his other siblings suffered with anything, just anything, but I couldn't find it. I hope this story brought you some information at least. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Hit the like button or subscribe if you're on YouTube consider becoming a sponsor on my Patreon. And thanks so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thank you again and have a great day.